Welcome to the Lot Carey Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, pastor of the First Baptist Church of New Market in Piscataway, New Jersey, and learning coordinator for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. The Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving weekly podcast grows from a multi-year journey among pastors committed to flourishing in ministry. This is a project of the Lot Carey Foreign Mission Society and is made possible through the generous support from the Lilly Endowment. Learn more about Lot Carey and how it helps churches to extend the Christian witness throughout the world at lotcarey.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot org. Join us for weekly conversations with pastoral thought leaders who share wisdom from the Black church for the whole church. Let's join Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, Associate Dean for Vocational Formation and Christian Witness at Duke Divinity School and the Project Director for Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. This week... He's in conversation with Reverend Dr. William Curtis, Senior Pastor of Mount Ararat Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're thrilled to be in conversation today with Dr. William H. Curtis, the Senior Pastor of the Mount Ararat Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Curtis. Well, thank you. Glad to know you're doing well in pandemic times. We're doing the best we can and uh, trusting the Lord step by step. There's an old song that says, step by step, we'll make this journey. I know that's right. I just dated us with that song, didn't I? Well, I didn't know anything about that song at all. (laughs) Far before my time. That's your story and you're sticking to it. With Dr. Curtis, um, more than 50 pastors have been on a journey that we call pilgrimages of striving and thriving. And we've been focusing on flourishing in ministry. Now, our assumption is that every round does not go higher and higher. We believe that flourishing in ministry requires both striving and thriving and that flourishing in ministry can be understood like a tree. Sometimes there are leaves, sometimes there are blossoms, sometimes the leaves are falling away, and sometimes there are only branches left. Can you describe for us what flourishing in ministry looks like to you? So I've been in my current congregation for 24 years. And I started pastoring them when I was 30. And I can say that my definition probably has morphed over the years. Uh, In the beginning, I probably would suggest that flourishing in ministry was a numbers game and a budget discussion and activity. That as much activity as you could have where the congregation was participating, that we might want to define that and categorize that as flourishing. 
And I think over the years, I've come to a different definition of that now. For me, flourishing is based upon the health of the congregation and how that congregation interacts in the marketplace. So if my preaching and the pedagogy of our congregation does something to create disciples who manage healthy relationships and who make a difference in their individual context, I count that as ministry success now. So for me, flourishing is content oriented and how that content transforms the minds, behaviors, and lifestyles of folk who consider themselves members of Mount Ararat, whether regular attendees or persons who are impacted by the ministry. You know, I've come to discover as I continue to comb through scripture that the Bible is a book for communities. And as much as we want to make it individualistic, it's really a book about how to navigate relationships and community. So for me, health and wellness is how that community is interacting with each other and how they are interacting with culture. So Bill Jones used to say in our doctoral cohort, at a certain point in his ministry, he stopped counting members and he started weighing them. And he discovered that he had a church full of people, but many of them did not weigh as much as they should have weighed at that time in his ministry. And I resonated with that because over the 24 years, I can honestly confess that we've had tons of activity, a boatload of ministries, a lot of busy work, but I can't always equate that congregational busy work to the development of the disciple, him or herself. And I just made that switch. How do we ensure that we are impacting people in a way that they then are reflecting Christ, not just in their time in the square footage we call Mount Ararat, but how is it impacting them in their everyday space, where they have influence, where they are managing relationships and the like. So I think his definition is spot on. And for me, a healthier church is one where it is not just translated into how members are interacting when they're in the building, but how are they living in community? You know, in this pandemic, that's become really, really significant and important. And my staff and I have done some very deep soul searching on whenever we come out of this, we already know, I think it's Todd Bozinger in his book, um, Navigating the Mountain, something about the mountain. Um, the mountains. Yes. He says in that, that the world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. That's his premise for that book. And that so resonated with me because I don't know what ministry is really going to look like when we come out of it. But I know for Mount Ararat and for me personally, it's going to look significantly different in terms of what has priority and what now we realize probably doesn't need to be hanging weight attached to the ministry. Sounds like to me that's a part of your and your team's um, assessment evaluation is thinking about wherever there is, what got us here is not going to get us there. Does that sound, am I hearing you right? Absolutely. What is also interesting to me is the people who were very suspicious of technology and its place in ministry have had to come to a conversion of sorts because it's all we had, right? So now that all we have is technology, 
it's amazing to me how many of my leaders are using the Zoom account to do ushers meetings and board meetings and fellowships and the like. And I was telling them 10, 12, 15 years ago that we were moving towards having technology as a major infusion in the ministry. And I can still hear the snickers and I can still remember the comments about that's not real church and it doesn't constitute the definition of what it means to be in fellowship. No fellowship is wherever people are communicating together. I'm doing this meditation tonight with my congregation that prayer is response to God's initiating of communication with us. And how does he communicate? He communicates first by his word. And the deeper we are in his word, the more we come to a knowledge of who God is. And that brings depth and content to our prayers that we really learn what to pray by learning more of the character of God. In our working with our pilgrim pastors, we've been building our experiences around something that we call a formula for flourishing, not the, but a formula for flourishing. And this formula holds that if a pastor's leadership capacity plus service context yields ministry content, there is a higher probability for flourishing. We don't assume that you can just drag and drop something that is more organic than that with the relation of capacity, context, and content. Can you talk a little bit about how your context of, men, of service can you tell us a little bit about how your context of service informs your content of ministry? Well, let me give you an example that's pretty humorous. So I did a funeral and I dismount the pulpit. I go down the back steps and I take my towel off and my culinary ministry is preparing for the repast. I slide up the back steps to go get what they always cook for me every time there's a funeral. And when I'm going up, there's a visitor. She's an elderly lady. She doesn't know that I'm the pastor. And one of my deacons happens to be at the door to the kitchen. And the old lady says to me, since I'm, quote unquote, significantly younger than her, she says to me, baby, will you go in there and get mama some chicken and some green beans? And my deacon says, oh, no, ma'am, we won't ask him. That's the pastor. She turns around and looks at my deacon and says, but he's going in there, right? And I said, yes, ma'am, I certainly am. I'll make your plate. I went and made the plate, brought it back out. I said, would you like anything else? She says, yes, do they have any cake and iced tea in there? So afterwards, my deacon comes up to me and she thinks it's just funny. And I tell her what expands capacity for a leader is touchability, relatability. I cannot ever presume that I can be effective and relevant if I am not trafficking around the people whom I pastor. So it's my congregation that has expanded capacity because in my interrelation, my interrelatedness with them, they are talking about needs. They are giving me constructive feedback. They're telling me how they observe the ministry. They are in soft conversation, evaluating the ministry. And that in a large way helps to shape sermons, series, Bible studies, what programs and ministries need to be developed. In other words, where the ministry has 
real needs. They don't have to be assumed. I am the son of a pastor, uh, Walter Thomas, who was very good at not only spotting gift and talent, but he was very good at pushing you beyond your comfort zones. And every platform, every national organization that I've been privileged to have leadership in, any significant speaking platforms that extended invitation to me came because my pastor in conversation would say to somebody, you need to call, call my son. And I would accept those invitations on his recommendation. And then I would grow into the garment that I didn't think that I was big enough to fit. And then I discovered after getting on those platforms that ministry really is up to God anyway. And once you're up there, he's not going to embarrass himself. So you, you rise to the occasion, right? So I credit others for pushing me to the development of increased capacity in ministry where I didn't think I might have had it before. Wow, that's, that's amazing for, to hear you uh, talk about the importance of somebody else seeing something in you and calling your name right um because uh you over your almost quarter of a century there at mount ararat church uh and in other spaces and you're a former president of the hampton university ministers conference which is a premier uh gathering uh, for clergy and sometimes when people look at pastors who uh, it, there's evidence that the Lord is blessing their ministry and they've had privilege to be on significant platforms in the congregation and beyond. People look at them with like stars in their eyes and all of that stuff, have no clue about what it took to get from where you started to there, but they mm -hmm. just see the snapshot, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So knowing that uh, and how people uh, look at uh, effective uh, and flourishing pastors. Can you say something to us uh, about an area of leadership that you had to develop over time? It wasn't always there, but you had to develop it. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm an extreme introvert by personality. So I, I preface what I'm gonna say with that because the major drawback for me in ministry was always based upon my introversion. The pulpit protects me, so it's a hiding place for me. If I'm teaching, the desk protects me, it's a hiding place for me. And what I had to learn relative to my leadership formation is that what people are really investing in is not just my information, they're really investing in me too. So they want relationship, for lack of a better word, and that's on multiple levels, but they want relationship. So learning how to be transparent, be available, and be relational, those were difficult for me. And over the 24 years here, those things became um, more innate for me because they were forced upon me. And if I was gonna be successful and effective, I had to learn that people have to be motivated, they've gotta be encouraged, they've gotta be related to, and they just can't access you to extract information or content from you. 
they really want to buy into you as a person. The other thing that I think is critical and key for ministry leaders is, at the end of the day, I do believe that scripture is true. Your gift makes room for you and brings you before great people. I believe that 100%. But the success of ministry is also built on relationships and recommendations. Most, if not all, of my external invitations have come from friends and colleagues making recommendations, leaving a place where they were privileged to minister and saying, hey, you should call my friend Bill Curtis and ask him to come. This would be a great fit for him. Oh, you need somebody for this conference? Call my friend. This is kind of in his wheelhouse. And then I get a call from a stranger who says, your name was recommended to me, which means at the end of the day, ministry is about navigating and managing relationships. My leadership had to come to that because I can't say that I had it prior to that. I was a great communicator, enjoyed preaching, loved doing the administrative work and being a boss and those kind of things, but managing the friendships and leveraging them for how we expand ministry were things I had to come to along the way. And then you get to a certain age, like I am now, where you're, you know, some would consider to be uh, past the halfway point. Now you realize that you move into a different phase. It's not accepting what colleagues and friends and mentors open for you. It's now reaching back and making sure that you're responsible for stewarding the same thing for the generation beneath you. A word to our listeners. Lot Carey's Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving podcast is funded by the Lilly Endowment through its Thriving in Ministry initiative. We'll be right back with more from the interview. Since 1897, the Lot Carey Global Christian Missional Community has helped churches to extend the Christian witness around the world through prayer partnership, financial support, and technical assistance. We come alongside indigenously-led communities to support ministries of evangelism, compassion, empowerment, and advocacy. Together, we are touching lives with transforming love. You can invest in churches, schools, clinics, and more throughout the world. Visit us at lotcarry.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for your partnership in this ministry. Welcome back to the Lot Carry Podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie, the Learning Coordinator of Lot Carry's Thriving in Ministry Program. Each week in this podcast, my colleague, Reverend Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, interviews a prominent Black pastoral leader to gain insight for flourishing in ministry. Now back to more of his interview with Reverend Dr. William Curtis, Senior Pastor of Mount Ararat Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Are there ways that somebody who, who's wanting to 
grow in ministry? Um, are there ways that they can, with integrity, look for influential leaders who can help to nurture them and invest in their lives? Yeah, I think, um, well, first, I think all relationships are organic. So I think they grow naturally. And you have to work on them, not just with a utilitarian kind of mindset. I don't want a relationship with you simply because I think you can open the door for me. I think those relationships are developed and as they are nurtured, two people or a group of people can develop an organic connectivity that makes a person try to open some doors for you or pour into you. And I don't like using that language, um, invest in you in ways that could be beneficial to your ministry. But I think from uh, the standpoint of a person who is seeking to expand their ministry, it is availing yourself to those relationships and not managing them in only a utilitarian fashion. For example, the persons I seem to resonate with best are people who don't just call me when they need something, but they want to establish relationship. They want to have ongoing conversation. And it's not always me investing into them, but reveal some desire to simply want to be connected to me as a person. I'm very leery of a generation of preachers who are managing ministry as if it's a business model, where instead of a Dr. Goatley being friend and brother for whom I carry concern, it is a business contact who can become a stepping stone to the next level. And I think that could be to our detriment because at the end of the day, and I will say this until I have nothing else about ministry to say, ministry is about relationships. I have, uh, I've sat on platforms that I probably by intellectual acumen or preaching gift I didn't deserve to be on those platforms, but relationally, I did. Helping to manage relationships through ministry was probably a greater explanation for why I was there. I, um, I was walking across the parking lot at Hampton as a young adult preacher, suited and booted, on my way back to the hotel, and ACD Vaughn, who was an officer at the time, pulls up to me, rolls the window down, and he says, Curtis, you finished your doctoral work, haven't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, listen, I want you to come to the Hampton Chapel tomorrow at three o'clock. You're going to be voted as the next necrologist of the Hampton Ministers Conference. So, of course, I had to say, Dr. Vaughn, what's a necrologist? <laughs> but when he explained that I would keep the record of the deceased preachers who were connected to Hampton, I said, OK, I'm, I'm always going to do what a mentor tells me to do. That next day, I'm sitting in the chapel. I'm surrounded by colleagues who are just at the meeting. Nobody knows what Dr. Vaughn's intent was. And the next thing I know, my name is called because there were no contenders for the necrologist of the Hampton Ministers Conference. And in his mind, it was, who could I get that was young that could survive 20 years and rise to eventually become president? Because at that, back in those days, it was kind of an automatic ascension up the ladder. And then at age 39, what had happened was two of the preceding presidents, one died prematurely before he was to be elected president, and the other retired from his congregation, not knowing that the bylaws of the Hampton Conference was you had to be an active pastor to be an officer. 
So he went back to his congregation to see if he could revoke his retirement. They said no. So I slid up two slots and then became the youngest president of Hampton because of that. Now, my, my point was, I'm literally walking across the parking lot. Was I qualified? Probably not, except for the fact that in his mind, he was looking for someone who had finished their terminal work. And I was from Baltimore, living in Western Pennsylvania, and he knew the next president probably needed to come from the Pennsylvania area. And for him, politically, it was an easier explanation for him to slide a Baltimore guy into the officer's position by using the explanation, well, we haven't had a president since Al Pugh from the Pennsylvania area, so I got a young fellow y'all might want to consider. A man's gift and relationships make room for them. Manage them well, and you'll go far in ministry. Trying to protect a brand, expand a brand, make a brand something that you think is grand and glorious, I think is dangerous. And I have a great disdain for that because I do think that if a member of my family dies, if I go through sickness, if something tragic happens in my congregation, I want people who have genuine relationships with me to have a care and concern for me and reach out to me when I'm going through those kind of crises. And I can painfully say that I've had some that have shocked me. Part of the pain I carry in ministry is to have misinterpreted some relationships with younger preachers that I have had and some peers that turned out to be utilitarian and I missed it. And I was disappointed in myself for missing it. I lost a lot of friends when I became president of Hampton because many of them thought, get close to him because he's gonna be giving out the invitations in a couple of years. And as soon as my presidency was over, I realized just how distant those relationships really were. What brings you the most joy as a pastor? Watching a member walk in without a lot of knowledge of who Christ is, very low self-esteem, feeling like they have no navigational coordinates for life, and then watching them thrive. I enjoy that, and I enjoy the relationships. I enjoy marrying second and third generations in the same family. Like, I never, I never thought, Doc, that I would be at a place where I would go, man, I married your mama. I married your dad. I baptized your dad, and I'm now baptizing you. Or when I get a call asking if I can be interviewed by a college student whose parents I discipled years ago, and not even knowing I had an impact on a young person back at that stage, and then they're in college finishing up um, a bachelor's or master's degree. And one of my members' daughters, who I had no idea was writing on subject matter related to church and intellect, and she wanted her pastor to be a part of the final exam because I had been a, an example for her of what it means to preach with scholarship. Well, you know, I just sat there, chest stuck out and smiling wide, you know, but it, it, was, it was one of those moments where you're like, ministry does work. It, it takes time. You got to invest the time, 
but it does work. And you have to think about ministry for the long game. For some listener who is either aspiring to be a pastor or they're active in their pastoral life, what piece of advice would you like to give to her or him or them? That being a good pastor is first about being a good Christian. Spend your career being interested in people. And to the extent that you can stay interested in people, you will always be effective. The other thing that I would say from a shop talk perspective is you never miss relevance when you stand in the gap. And what I mean by standing in the gap is when you're transparent about owning the tensions of your own life, you never miss relevance for people. Whatever those tensions are, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'll be a 54-year-old father of a 24-year-old daughter who is working her way through med school. She's in the city of Philadelphia, and I'm pastoring in COVID-19, and I have to admit, I miss my church, and I carry trauma about what it's doing to ministry. And... I'm mad at God that in my best years professionally, I got a pastor in the midst of one of the hardest pandemics the globe has ever had, right? When my, when my congregation hears that kind of transparency, it for them is the aha moment. So I think uh, success in ministry is about transparency. I think success in ministry is not about the money in the buildings and the square footage. It's about being concerned about the health and wellness of your members. And you got to work. You got to work. Pastoring is not an easy job. And people look at the platform, the speaking platform, and equate that with the totality of ministry. But that is only one dimension, and I would say it's the easiest dimension of ministry. The hardest part is walking around being the one who has absorbed everybody's crisis and managing it in a way that your water doesn't become putrefied. And I wish we could do a whole lot more transparent talking about that because I think that's what leads to some of the addictive behaviors. I think it's because we just don't know where to go with the pain. And we don't talk about it to each other much because everybody wants to be, you know, the strongest pastor who can handle everything. I'm blessed to have such a good group of friends that if I call them and say, I, I just, I'm so mad at God, I don't know when I'm going to preach again. I just don't know if I want to, I just don't understand how my favorite deacon who lived his whole life to manage things well for his retirement, set it all, set his whole family up and catches COVID and dies. And I gotta funeralize him and help make sense of this, right? So those are all the things that talk to me. I know you're not trying to do therapy with me today, but those are all the things that, that kind of come along with ministry. And I think success for that is being honest about that and doing what the psalmist says, that not all not all psalms are praise and not all psalms are complaint. Some of them are lament. 
And it's just the ability to say, God, this sucks. And I don't know how I'm supposed to handle this. I'm not losing my faith in you. And I know you're real. And I still love you. But I can't make sense out of this. And I'm trying to pastor, you know, when the windows are foggy and I'm just trying to make sense out of it. I think to the degree that we can be open and honest with that, success is on the other side of those things. We've been blessed to be in conversation with Dr. William H. Curtis, the senior pastor of the Mount Ararat Baptist Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you, Dr. Curtis, for spending this time and for sharing your heart and being transparent and for helping us to think what it means to flourish in ministry. It's been a pleasure. You're one of my favorite people, Dr. Goatley. And you mine, and thanks for your friendship and your partnership. Same here. Thank you for joining us today for Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, a weekly podcast from Lot Carey as we listen in on conversations with prominent pastoral thought leaders. Join us next week for a conversation with a new guest and fresh insights. Wisdom from the Black Church for the whole church. I'm Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Madison McQuarrie. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving is produced in partnership with Good Faith Media. Music by Makita McQuarrie. Share the word with those who need to hear it. Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, wherever you get your podcasts. Also listen online at lotcarry.org. Mm-hmm.